In this episode, I am once again joined by John Muirden Reynolds, also known as Lama Vajranata, writer, teacher, translator, and scholar practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism. John begins with the discussion about the unique characteristics of Dzogchen, common misunderstandings that have arisen from its widespread popularity, and the differences between Dzogchen, Mahamudra, and the Kensho of Zen. John also discusses his extensive field research into Himalayan shamanism, spirit possession and rituals of exorcism, shamanic diagnosis and healing, and what it takes to become a shaman. John also explores the various classes of spirit, including Gyalpo spirits, who manifest as authoritarianism and sectarianism, recounts experiences of spirit attacks, and explains the differences between the shaman, lama, and a magician. So without further ado, John Mirden Reynolds. John Mirden Reynolds, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm so delighted to be talking with you again. And the last two episodes that we recorded together have been extremely well received and popular. Really? Oh yes, in the first one we discussed your life and academic career and also your career in Buddhism or your trajectory, should we say, in Buddhism. And it was very fascinating indeed. And in the second episode, we talked about your experience in Western esotericism, becoming oh, yeah. a third degree High Wiccan priest. And yeah. we had a fascinating discussion about comparing sadhana practice and the purposes of that and the mechanisms of that with evocation and invocation rituals found in Western esotericism. And that yes, was really out of the Key of Solomon, which was the text that Gerald Gardner used when constructing his basic uh, uh, Wiccan rite that he put in the Book of Shadows. Yeah. And we had left some cliffhangers on that second episode. <laughs> and yes. uh, and that, those cliffhangers were, well, there were several of them. And one of the key ones was to do with exorcism and soul retrieval. And your research in Nepal into the techniques and the lore of Tibetan shamanism. Yeah, And so I would like to discuss that with you today. But first, yeah. uh, I noticed on your website, vatranatha.com, that you have an, a seminar coming up. Now, uh, the date is September 16th to 17th, 2023. No, no. That, that's been changed. It's the oh. end of uh, the month, the 31st of September and the 1st of uh, October. Right. Beginning and at uh, 3 o'clock Central European time. Saturday and, that, and Sunday. Saturday and Sunday. And that yeah. seminar is called Dzogchen, Discovering Buddhahood Within Oneself. Yes, and, what, and, and what, there the emphasis will not be so much talking about uh, the background of Dzogchen uh, or anything as academic as that, but mainly about how one practices and actually doing the uh, practices. Of course, I draw on my initial experience with uh, uh, Dujin Rinpoche, who was my first uh, Dzogchen master when I got to India in 1969, prehistoric times for some people. I'm wondering if you might say something about the unique characteristics of Dzogchen, at least in the way you're going to be presenting it. I understand there, are, there are a, there's a range of presentations of Dzogchen. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, so some people see it as a direct, dare I say, easy way 
I've heard that kind of a thing. Oh, give me the Dzogchen. I don't want to do the Sadhana. I don't want to do this Nundro and so on. Just give me the pointing out instructions and then I'll be initiated into the nature of mind or something like this. So one hears all these these remarkable stories of, of Dzogchen pointing out instructions and yeah, immediate realization of the nature of mind and so on. Um, so I'm wondering uh, if you might say something about the unique characteristics of Dzogchen and in particular in the context of what you'll be presenting at the end of September. Yeah, well, you see, Dzogchen has sort of become now uh, a fashion and a popular buzzword and so on, much like Zen was in the uh, 1960s when I first got involved with uh, uh, Buddhism in America. And so many people are now claiming to teach Dzogchen and so on, whether they've had very much contact uh, with it or, or not. But in general, it was uh, preserved in the two old schools of uh, uh, Tibet, that is the Nyingmapas and the uh, uh, Bumpos. And... Uh, when I first got interested, there wasn't any information about this mysterious uh, teaching called Dzogchen. And it wasn't uh, until actually I met uh, Dujum Rinpoche in uh, India that I got a direct uh, introduction to it, what people are called pointing out instruction. The thing is, uh, the Ngundro that uh, people are doing, this is not the introduction or the introductory practices of Dzogchen. This is for the Tantra system. And it's very useful because it gives you a sort of crash course in uh, Buddhism from both the Sutra point of view and the Tantra uh, point of view. But in order to get a uh, the Rikpa uh, Ngotro, the direct introduction to the state of uh, Dzogchen, or what some people are calling pointing out uh, instructions, you have to be prepared for this. I had already for years been practicing uh, meditation in the U.S. with Dejan Rinpoche, Tartan Tuku, and so on. So, uh, Dujan Rinpoche recognized this, and so he didn't talk about the Ngundro or anything. We began just with the Semtri, which are uh, the mind uh, uh, teachings. And of course, there's exercises you uh, do there, which I would present in the uh, seminar and so on. But in order to get at the nature of mind, you have to first get at what is meant by mind. People use that term, that word, all, all the time without thinking what it means in terms of direct experience. So say my mind and things like this, like it's some sort of object or substance or something like this. So we have to actually get into the experience of this, and that's why meditation practice beforehand is uh, uh, so important. Otherwise, there's nothing to uh, point out. It's just so many uh, words. Because actually, Dzogchen is not a... Uh, 
object and it is uh, not an intellectual teaching. Uh, it isn't actually something you can get from reading a book or taking a, a weekend seminar or something like this. It is actually a state of being which you must discover within yourself. And unless you discover or first make the effort to discover who you are, it's just so much blah, blah, just uh, so uh, many words. And when you're uh, living in uh, words and so on, that's not uh, Dzogchen. One of the most useful uh, images uh, here is that of uh, the mirror. Namkai Norbu Rinpoche always used that when explaining about Dzogchen that in Dzogchen you find yourself in the condition of the mirror, not just in the condition of the reflections in the mirror. That means we find ourselves in the nature of mind rather than in the content, uh, contents of the nature of mind, that is our thoughts and emotions and so on. It doesn't mean we're just a blank mind, there's no experience there, but our center of gravity has uh, uh, shifted and we find ourselves in that uh, uh, condition. And yes, we can continue having experiences, but uh, we are like being the mirror and the reflections are uh, appearing in the mirror. But if we haven't done any meditation practice before that, then those explanations are uh, just words. So we have to come to an experiential understanding of this. And then, of course, uh, Dzogchen comes to us in the context of the uh, Tantra system. And as I was explaining last time, we have the Kairim, the visualization process, where we visualize ourselves as a Yidam meditation deity uh, sitting in the middle of its uh, sacred uh, space, the mandra, uh, uh, the mandala palace or temple. And then we uh, identify ourselves with that Yidam. Uh, uh, meditation deity meditating upon it in order to access those uh, qualities, powers, capacities, and wisdoms that are traditionally uh, associated with it. But all that is not Dzogchen, that uh, is the Kerem. But then there is also the question of how does the uh, deity, the Eda meditation deity feel? And that's the next phase, which is known as Dzogrim, or the uh, perfection uh, uh, process. And the central practice there is that of uh, Tummo, or what the Hindus call Kundalini, you give rise to the uh, psychic heat, which is the uh, tumo. Well, it's not just heat, but it's also pleasurable uh, sensation or bliss or ecstasy. And, and uh, so you find yourself ultimately attaining the Mahamudra, where you are totally in the dimension of the meditation deity as the as the Yidam. And this is uh, preparing us for the realization of uh, 
the Rupakaya when we attain uh, Buddhahood. But uh, <clears throat> this uh, lasts for the duration of our uh, med meditation practice, where we find ourselves temporarily in this virtual reality. But then we dissolve that visualization back into the state of shunyata or emptiness out of which it originally arose. And it's at that moment we have the opportunity to find ourselves in contemplation or the uh, state of uh, Dzogchen. Now, it doesn't mean that's necessarily going to happen, but it provides that uh, uh, opportunity. And so then we uh, distinguish in the sadhana practice these three phases of the Kerem, the Zokrim, and finally the Zokchen, because Chenpo can also mean uh, not just great, but total. We find ourselves totally in Zokpa, the perfect uh, realization of uh, being an enlightened being in the aspect of uh, uh, the Yidam. But then, of course, uh, the ordinary sounds of and visions of mundane life, then we emerge. And so then we find ourselves in Jetop, the subsequent realization there. So doing sadhana practice is one way to find yourself in Dzogchen, but it's not the only way. There are other ways. It doesn't mean then that everyone has to do these elaborate sadhanas in order to practice uh, Dzogchen. And then people are often asked also, including myself, when I first went to Darjeeling, uh, about Mahamudra and Dzogchen. What's the difference? And the various lamas uh, would say to me, ah, Chakchen, Dzogchen, Chikpare, which means Mahamudra and Dzogchen are the same. And basically that's true. Now the Mahamudra that we usually talk about comes to us through the Kajipu, uh, Kajipa uh, tra tradition because it came at uh, a later period in Tibet, the uh, 11th century revival of monastic Buddhism in Tibet, whereas Dzogchen uh, came earlier with Padmasambhava and Vimalamitra and Vairochana in the uh, 8th century. And uh, generally everyone knows Amit uh, Milrepa, the famous yogi, and, uh, and so on, and finally after being trained by Marpa, he retired to that cave in the mountains. And then the Kadampa monk uh, Gambopa sought him out. And uh, Milarepa gave him instruction, in particular in the six yogas of uh, Naropa, which is basic uh, Dzogrim practice. That is Tomo, and then the uh, auxiliary yogas with that. And he gave him instruction in Mahamudra. But before Milarepa had gone to Marpa, he had gone to learn magic from uh, a Nyingma Palama. And from that Nyingma Palama, he was also instructed in uh, Dzogchen Semde, the mind series of teachings of uh, Dzogchen. Uh, 
And he transmitted this uh, to Gambopa. He simply called it Mahamudra. And so then that came down as a lineage. And when Kala Rinpoche was giving trans, and he was a, a Kalkajipalama, Karma Kajulama, uh, giving in instruction on uh, 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 Mahamudra, I was totally amazed because it was exactly Zoche. Uh, uh, so what these lamas were saying is true. And we also know from the criticisms of the great uh, scholar, uh, Sakya Pandita, uh, who uh, lived in the 12th, 12th century, uh, he criticized uh, Gambopa for uh, say, uh, teaching this uh, Mahamudra where you didn't have to go through this tantric transformation practice first because the other understanding of Mahamudra is when you find yourself totally in the identity and condition of the Yidam meditation deity. So within Tibetan Buddhism, there's various uh, shades of meaning and disputes and uh, uh, so on like, like this. But anyway, in those uh, early days in Darjeeling, we had no problem uh, doing Dzogchen and Mahamudra uh, uh, together. And so, uh, as they say, there are uh, various ways to find yourself in uh, uh, the state of uh, Dzogchen. So just through ordinary Shine meditation, it's possible to uh, de develop there. And sometimes it can just uh, happen to spontaneous, like, like the Zen stories about people suddenly waking up and finding themselves in Kensho or something when they were sitting on the toilet or brushing their teeth or something like this. But Zen work works much like this. It is also like uh, Dzogchen and Mahamudra. It's Upadesha teaching. That is uh, direct and rather private meditation instruction from a master to a single disciple or at most a small group of uh, uh, the disciples. But uh, Zen differs in that it comes out of the Sutra tradition, uh, originally uh, the uh, Lankavatara uh, Sutra, later the Sixth Patriarch uh, emphasized the Vajrachedaka Sutra, but uh, originally the uh, uh, <coughs> Lankavatara uh, Sutra, but uh, it's the same uh, Shunyata here that uh, we have in Dzogchen and Mahamudra and Zen. But in uh, uh, Zen, uh, Dzogchen and Mahamudra, there is more emphasis on the Nangwa or the illumination side of uh, experience. Whereas in Zen, you're told sort of just ignore this and focus on uh, uh, Shunyata, the state of uh, uh, emptiness. So anyway, uh, we get into some of the uh, practical aspects of this from uh, uh, Dzogchen Sunday and Dzogchen uh, Long Day when we do this uh, seminar at the end of the month.
Fascinating. Great. I wonder if there are any near enemies of Dzogchen. I'm thinking, for example, of, oh, of yes. a, certain, <laughs> a certain way of teaching Dzogchen and Mahamudra that involves a kind of hypnotic induction and then appointing to that trance state as the nature of mind. I've seen that done in quite um, popular contexts, actually. Uh, are there near enemies of Dzogchen? Um, and if so, what might they be? Well, uh, there's always a Lokdran, that is, uh, false teachers, like uh, the, the Western Jewish and Christian tradition, they speak about false prophets. So we also uh, have this, that there's false teachings about Dzogchen and so on. But Dzogchen is not uh, trance. Uh, Dzogchen is a state of total presence and alert awareness. Trance is not. Trance is uh, an experience. Yes, there's many kinds of experiences, including mitokpa uh, nyam, the experience of uh, having uh, no thoughts. If uh, Dzogchen was simply no uh, thoughts, then any uh, cow in the pasture chewing on her God is an enlightened being, a, uh, a Buddha on four legs. But that's uh, Lungmaten, that, that is a dull state of mind. That is not Dzogchen. Trances are always dull states of mind. You can't uh, induce a semi-hypnotic state and then tell somebody, oh, no, this is the nature of the mind. Now, in fact, if anybody says to you, oh, uh, I am most of the time in the nature of mind, and they say this mainly to impress the girls who are at the retreat, you know for sure they're not, because if you're in the nature of mind, you're not talking. Talking is when the mind is working. The state of Sochen transcends the mind's beyond the mind, but it's not unconscious. It's totally present, alert, and aware. It has its own qualities. Now, how do you know you're in that state? Well, you don't. Because if you think you know something, you are in the state, you are in mind, you are in duality. So who knows Dzogchen? You don't know Dzogchen. Dzogchen knows itself. It's uh, wrong self. It's self-illuminated. It's like you have the candle flame, which illuminates uh, the dark room so you can see everything in it, but it also illuminates itself. So if you're in Dzogchen, the state of Dzogchen, or Rigpa, Intrinsic awareness knows this. You don't know this like you're the subject here looking at an object. That's duality. That's the mind working. So in this sense, uh, Dzogchen is beyond the mind. So then we speak of not sem, mind, but semyi, the nature of uh, mind. Very interesting indeed. And speaking of trance... Yeah, that's that is something associated, I think, with shamanism, and oh, it's yes. a word often associated with Himalayan shaman, shamanism. Um, uh, so perhaps this is a good segue into yeah. your research. Now you've done you've researched the techniques, as I mentioned before, of Tibetan shamanism, Him Himalayan shamanism, 
including rights of exorcism, soul retrieval, and so on, and presumably yeah. the oracular uh, functions that uh, are pr pr uh, performed there too. Yes, I was, uh, because I went to Nepal to uh, do research in the Nyingmapa tradition in particular, and so I wasn't then, uh, although we had Tamang shamans in the village of Boda when I was living there in the early days, I don't know, I think they have retreated somewhat from Boda these days, which has become sort of a metropolis now. I mean, Kathmandu has expanded uh, beyond the borders. It's changed more than any other place I've experienced in my life. When I first went there around 1969, uh, I got on the airplane at Patna, and, uh, you know, we were going this small plane, and when we got to Tribhuvan Airport, uh, we had to circle around while they chased the cows off the uh, landing field before we could come down. And uh, they got, got out of it. It was just a small brick uh, building at, at that time. And immigration was in that and so uh, passed through. And then I got a taxi walla and we went out onto the ring road, which had been built a couple of years before by the Chinese. And we got to the intersection at Chaobao. And then he stopped and he refused to go down the hill to Boda because the Kampa guerrillas were there who during the uh, summer would fight the Chinese in uh, uh, Tibet. And uh, in the winter, they would retire to Boda and would get to be armed by, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the Americans and, and whatnot. And they... <laughs> The taxi wallers were afraid of these compas running around with these weapons and so on. So I had to hike down still a dirt road. There was no electricity except in the police station. That was the only place. There were no toilets, no running water. You just went out in the field and that. No restaurant. So there was a kind Tibetan woman who was uh, making uh, vegetarian momos for the hippies and so on. And, uh, you know, this was primitive at this time, but uh, one of the places to gather socially were the Chongkongs. Boda was famous for its uh, Chongkongs or uh, taverns where you drank, uh, you know, tra traditional uh, chong made from wheat or millet or whatever, mainly wheat at, at that time. Uh, but there was one just at the end of the village where the uh, Tamang shamans would hang out and they were collecting gossip about the Tamang community and so on because they also serve as uh, the psychotherapists and advisors and uh, so on to their uh, community. And in Nepal, uh, Shamanic practices have been very much integrated even with uh, modern Western practices. So in the hospitals there, uh, they have uh, shamans on staff who can come in because you get tribal peoples, gurus and manans and uh, so on. And uh, it helps when the two systems uh, work uh, together. Now, I got interested in shamanism because of my 
own uh, background, I don't know if I mentioned this uh, when we were talking about my per personal life in that first uh, podcast, but when I was three years old, I met the spirits for the first time who rose out of uh, the water and introduced themselves to me and so on and explained to me that they live beneath the earth in these jewel-like uh, cities and I should visit them and so on. So then I went out in the backyard and started digging a hole and my mother got upset when she saw me disappear in, the, in a hole, called the neighbors, they pulled me out and asked me why I was doing this. And I said, well, I met these uh, uh, water spirits, which I, I later uh, discovered are called Nagas in, in India. And I want to make contact with them. And then she told my father, who figured, oh, must be dinosaurs. So he took me to the uh, Paleontological Museum at Princeton University, took a dinosaur skeleton. I said, no, no, they're not that big, they're, you know, human size and so on, even though they're green. And then later, uh, when we moved to another part of New Jersey, we were just at the end of the suburbs and the forest began there. And I used to wander in there and so on. And I encountered various uh, spirits associated with certain rock for formations and the trees, uh, what are called uh, yakshas in, uh, in India. But I very soon learned that uh, it was unwise uh, to speak about this in our American society because uh, either the, the Christians think you were hanging out with demons and devils and you know, this sort of thing. Or um, they thought you were uh, going crazy and you needed uh, uh, psychiatrists and uh, the mental hospital. And so, on. so I just kept my mouth shut. And I didn't have any trouble, you know, growing up in American society in that way. But occasionally I would have experiences that were quite different from them. So when I got involved with uh, Tibetan Buddhism, of course, for the Tibetans, nature is filled with spirits, not only nature, but even our human communities and, uh, and so on. So I was sensitive uh, to this. And then I met some Ngakpa Lamas who were specializing in going around to the various uh, villages and dealing with the problems of uh, spirit possession or when spirits would cause uh, diseases and other uh, difficulties uh, for uh, uh, people and found, uh, oh, it's very much a living uh, tradition among the uh, Tibetans and the shamans uh, were Buddhist in religion. Now, of course, this would be, can be different, say, for example, with the uh, tribal people, like the, some uh, like the Tamangs, who mix a lot of uh, Hinduism in with this, and Shiva and so on, or the uh, Gurus, who uh, kind of, uh, some of them resent the uh, Tibetan Lamas, because the Lamas are opposed to the practice of uh, blood sacrifice. This is the main big uh, difference because both of them, are both the uh, tribal shaman and the Tibetan lama are dealing with the spirits. 
but they deal with it in a, a, a different way. The main Tibetan method is a puja. You establish a personal relationship with the spirits in the other world, and then you communicate to them, and uh, in particular communicate energy to them by way of making offerings, because the puja offerings are the embodiment of uh, energy, because they are, are consecrated. They're not just the uh, physical drinks and food, but uh, through the consecration, uh, the purification consecra and consecra consecration, energy has been projected into them, and the spirits receive this uh, energy. And when you have given energy to them, then this is transactional uh, and uh, reciprocal. You can expect uh, something in return from uh, them. Include, may include worldly benefits and good health, prosperity, timely rains, things like this. And this is uh, practiced at uh, every uh, Buddhist monastery with the uh, guardian uh, pujas done around sunset because the spirits become stronger when the sun begins to set, the sun being the symbol of ego and waking consciousness. And when that goes down below the horizon, then everything in our uncon collective unconscious psyche begins to arise. And that includes the other world of uh, uh, the spirits. And so they have these dharmapala uh, pujas or puja uh, offering uh, ceremonies for the guardians. And there's uh, two important considerations here. That first of all, the uh, leading officiant or the principal lama does a ladru, a meditation where he transforms himself into some powerful guru or yidam figure, for example, like uh, Mahakala. And uh, then when the spirits are summoned, uh, they see Mahakala there, and so then they behave very respectfully and so on. Because uh, the uh, guardian spirits or dharmapalas who are emanations of uh, great bodhisattvas like Avalokiteshvara, Manjushri, Vajrapani, etc. Uh, they are enlightened beings. So they are infinitely patient and uh, uh, infinitely compassionate. And even if you act like a jerk and uh, screw everything up and so on, they're still totally patient and compassionate with you, they don't get angry. But in their retinue, there are many drekpa, which are lesser spirits who are a bit arrogant and temperamental and become easily irritated. And so they can cause problems. And so this is one reason that the efficient, uh, the leading lama, transforms himself into this powerful figure like Mahakala, who can then keep all these more uh, uh, rowdy spirits uh, uh, under control. The second important thing is you always have uh, uh, puja offerings uh, for them, because these lesser spirits are like 
children. And they come to your door, like uh, in Halloween in Great Britain, Canada, US, and they say trick or treat, you know, which means you either give them a bribe, candies and, and so on, or they can do some mischief, like soap your windows or let the air out of the tires on your car, things like this. Well, it's the same way with these lesser spirits, you uh, give, give them a bribe. But uh, in the Buddhist tradition, we don't make offerings of blood sacrifice. Now, in ancient India, uh, this was done, particularly with the Yakshas. The Nagas didn't like this. You always make white offerings to the Nagas, like milk and sweets and this uh, kind of thing. I remember even when I was living at the Hindu ashram in South India, in Andhra Pradesh, Every morning, the Hindu ladies would come out and we had a Nagaputa, which was this mount. It was probably originally a termite mount, but there were passages that went to the underworld there. So they believed that the Nagas were down there and they would make offerings of milk there. And then I remember my Irish grandmother telling me that in her youth, her family would leave offerings of milk outside the door for the Eshi, uh, for the people of the Shi, because they believed that these spirits lived in the hollow hills of Ireland and so on. Very much like the Nagas and also uh, both groups, the Irish and the Indian, they liked the color green and so on. So I saw them do it, doing that. But the uh, Yakshas in ancient times, some of them were rather uh, ferocious and they liked uh, to feed on uh, blood sacrifice. Now, when you sacrifice an animal, and it was the same in uh, India in those days and then uh, in uh, pagan Europe before Europe became Christian and with the uh, Greeks and Romans, you uh, offer an animal and you kill it by slitting its throat and allowing the blood to flow out on a stone uh, altar. And the spirits feed on the prana, the life force or energy which uh, flows out of uh, the blood, the blood's a vehicle. Uh, for this, they don't actually feed on what we would call the material of the offering. And so the Buddhists came up with this method of the uh, torma, which is a vegetarian substitute offering. You make this uh, cake, and of course it becomes a, uh, a form of uh, Tibetan art. These uh, torma cakes can be extremely uh, elaborate with decorations and uh, uh, so on. And they're made of a vegetarian substance, and mainly Tibetans use uh, tsampa, which is a roasted barley flour. Ancient India, they made it out of rice. And then when you are uh, offering to these uh, spirits, you paint it uh, red with uh, vegetable dye. And then uh, you... Uh, you prepare the physical offering, and then first you cleanse it with Ram Yam Kam, invoking out of your heart chakra the wisdom fires, 
then the wisdom wins, the wisdom fires burn away all the impurities on the offering. The wisdom wins, green in color, blow away all the ashes of the impurities, and then the white wisdom waters uh, wash away any uh, remaining purities. All right, that's the sangwa, the cleansing process. Then we have the jangwa, uh, which is a purification, because you are seeing the offering still with your impure karmic vision, the normal way human being sees them. So you temporarily, you close your eyes, which invokes the sensation of the experience of the state of uh, shunyata or pure potentiality. And then you visualize this torma as uh, not what you actually have there, whether you've made it yourself or you bought it at the bakery, as this uh, magnificent torma cake, you know, more sumptuous than a big uh, 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 wedding cake. And then uh, that is its purification. And then you do the... Uh, Chinlap, that is invoking the higher spiritual energies from a higher source to descend and enter in to the uh, Torma cake. Uh, this is what was called by the Greeks, uh, theurgy, uh, working with the energy of uh, the gods. You summon it down from heaven and there. Well, <clears throat> in Tribal societies, yes, you summon the higher energies from heaven and enter it, like the ancient uh, Greeks and Romans did. The Buddhists understand that heaven, or the sky up there, is the symbol of the uh, collective enlightenment of the Buddhas of the three times, of past, present, and future. And so you invoke those energies of body, speech, and mind with the mantra, Omahum, and they descend and enter into your torma cake. And then you are ready to uh, summon the uh, spirits and you uh, offer it to them. And then you see them circle uh, around it and their tongues become like straws and go into it and draw out the energy that is in, in the cake, which makes them happy and they feel satisfied and well disposed towards you or your con congregation. And then you can ask them what you, you charge them what to do then, because you've given energy to them, you can expect energy uh, from from that. Well, with uh, tribal sh uh, shamans, uh, such as the uh, gurus, uh, they felt, uh, no, the spirits aren't going to be fooled by this. You have to actually offer them the blood from a live animal. So there is this argument in the or debate in the Himalayas between the, the lamas and other uh, tra traditional uh, uh, shamans about how you make these uh, offerings to the spirits. But the same thing, if you did uh, do a marcha, which means a, a blood uh, offering, again, you would then ask uh, what you want from these uh, spirits, you know, help me find uh, what I have lost or bring me prosperity or good health, etc., like, like this. 
So this is a principle we find everywhere in the world, also in re religion, whether you light candles for saints or Maria or so on and pray to them, then you can ask them uh, for uh, help. But uh, doesn't always work. And sometimes uh, the spirits can uh, be recalcitrant and uh, difficult and still cause troubles. So this is why at the conclusion, the officiating Lama holds up a Vajra or even better, a uh, uh, Purba, that is a three-bladed uh, dagger and shows this to the spirits and manifesting himself as a powerful figure like Guru Rinpoche or Mahakala and says, if you don't be satisfied and now depart and go off to your own place and don't return and cause us uh, problems, we are going to crush your head into dust and so on. Well, in order to threaten the spirits like that, you have to have the capacity to hold that vis visualization that strongly. Otherwise, they'll just look at you and laugh and say, who's this guy, you know? And uh, even if you're not threatening, they might get irritated. They say, oh, who's this guy? Why is he calling us? Why is he bothering us, you know? So you have to know what you're uh, doing here. Now, mainly, the uh, uh, main function of uh, shamans is that of uh, healing. And also, uh, these Nakpas who go around to the villages, like several I worked with in uh, uh, Nepal, and they were Nyingmapa in terms of re religion. It's not, in Among the Tibetan, shamanism is not a separate religion. But some places like the gurus or even in uh, Mongolia, because uh, Mongolia uh, converted to Buddhism much uh, uh, later. First, there was the time of the Yuan dynasty with uh, the descendants of Genghis Khan, I mean, Kublai Khan and so on. All right, but not everybody actually became Buddhist. And then when that dynasty collapsed, a lot of people just continue with their uh, shamanic activity and evoking the, the old uh, uh, spirits. And then there was a revival of um, monastic uh, Buddhism in the 17th and 18th century, bringing again lamas from uh, Tibet to Mongolia and young Mongols going to, in, uh, to Tibet to study at Drepung and other big monasteries. Well, the, uh, the Gelugpas are, there's a difference there with them and the Nyingmapas. The Nyingmapas are much more integrated with the old shamanic culture that existed in pre-Buddhist days. Whereas the Gelugpas are much more, a little bit like the Christians, you know, no, that is all heretical and uh, so on. We don't want to be part of that, even though they do, you know, shamanic practices by invoking the guardians and this Paul and Lamo and, and the rest of them, and Mahakala, as I was explaining before. So in Mongolia, uh, shamanism is still uh, like a separate re re religion. And uh, then they feel attacked and persecuted by the Kalupa 
um, Buddhists, and one time we had a a uh, program in Austria. It was in relation to the Dalai Lama coming and doing the Kalakala Chakra. Uh, empowerment and so on, where lots of people showed up. But then we had a, a separate program half after that in uh, uh, Himalayan shamanism. We had one lady from Buryatia in si Siberia, and she was uh, talking about they were problems they were having with uh, uh, sectarian Buddhists who were trying to persecute the uh, shamans and uh, so on. But my own experience was that the, uh, like with the Tamangshans, you could have Buddhism and shamanism totally side by side, and the Buddhists were, were not objecting to you relating to the spirits. It's not like uh, Christianity and Judaism where there's only one God and you can't know. All the gods are, are, are out there as, uh, as spirits and so on. But uh, what the Buddhists object, uh, object to is the sacrificing of uh, animals. And you can see that in October when there's Durga Puja. Uh, uh, you know, for uh, Kali in her various forms and the Hindus, their sacrifice uh, animals. And when they try to do that at a stupa, then they can get in fistfights with Tibetans and so on. Uh, so that's the big uh, conflict. It's not... Uh, Theological, rather, it's in terms of whether you practice blood sacrifice or, or, or not. Now, when shamans do the healing pra practice, yes, they do enter into a trance or an altered state of uh, reality, or they can. Some of them may fake it into, but, but uh, like um, Dolkar. She was a chlaba or a shaman from, a lady shaman from Ladakh, and she worked for uh, some time in uh, Bodh in Nepal, and I saw her uh, working there. And she was uh, very uh, uh, affected, uh, effective. Uh, she would do uh, chanting and drumming, and uh, assisted by her husband, who would also do the drum. Because when the shaman goes into trance, he or she uh, loses their usual motor ability, so they can't keep singing. And, and, and uh, they experience their namshe, or their consciousness, leaving their body. It, it sort of enters into something somewhat, let's describe like a rainbow uh, two. Now, on the altar of the shaman, you have uh, three mirrors placed there, which uh, symbolize uh, the three different existences. That of uh, the devas, or, well, use the Tibetan term, hla, the hla in the, in the sky, in the heavens above, and then the lu, which means uh, the nagas in the worlds uh, below and in the water element. And then for in between, you have the third mirror, which represents the zen, 
or in the old bumpo terminology, they were called nian, but now they mainly use the term Zen earth, earth spirits. So you have the sky spirits, the underworld spirits, and the earth spirits, and the consciousness of the shaman leaves the body and goes through one of those uh, uh, gateways. And then the uh, spirit guide of the shaman, which in Ladakh is called the Thla, but in central uh, Tibet called a uh, uh, Pawo, uh, enters uh, into the body of uh, the shaman, taking possession of it, and then speaks through the shaman. Now, that is not the state of Dzogchen. <laughs> Anyway, uh, in that condition, uh, the spirit has insight into uh, what first causes the disease. And sometimes this takes the form of a, a dialogue or question and answer with the assistant to the shaman uh, asking the questions. And uh, uh, it may be the case that some spirit has become offended with that person and uh, uh, therefore has affected their energy because the spirits being energy beings can vibrate and resonate with our own personal energy field, which is correlated with our immune system. And so they can induce a, a sickness, an illness, a weakness, so an illness manifests. And so the uh, first thing is to locate if there is a spirit which is the particular cause of this particular uh, affliction. Now, even before the shaman uh, does the trance, uh, the shaman will do certain divinations and also tra, uh, which means scrying, that means gazing into a mirror. Uh, if he's skilled to withdraw, he may get a vision of the offended spirit and so on, which then facilitates contact with, with that spirit. But anyway, at the uh, second phase then is how to bring about a cure for this uh, illness. Now, a lot of people have uh, bunon, which means uh, karmic debts, and these incur lechak, or karmic retribution. This is a very sh shamanic uh, concept, because the <clears throat> when they brought Buddhism into Tibet, they spoke about uh, your karma in more in impersonal uh, terms, whereas uh, lechak, or karmic retribution, is very personal. Now, in your previous life, you have uh, caused suffering to or injured or killed many living beings, either as a hunter to eat them, as a farmer, you know, to, or a cattle herder or nomad, you know, to feed on the, the flesh or uh, in battle against uh, the human beings. Now, of course, most spirits uh, have gone on to other uh, lifetimes, but some have not. And then when they see you, they recognize you who 
did harm to them in a previous life. And this brings then lenchak uh, or karmic retribution. They can cause you problems in terms of events or they can cause you uh, illness. So the shaman is diagnosing this and then makes a prescription. You can do a lenchak puja uh, where you... Uh, make offerings specifically to that uh, spirit and you apologize to them for what you've done in a, a previous life and uh, please accept this offering as compensation for what I've done to you in the past. It's like in tribal societies where you have uh, blood money. You uh, somebody in your clan has killed somebody in another clan. Okay, this could bring about a feud where the two clan, you know, like in Scotland, where the two uh, clans feud for a generation. Or you can make some sort of offering or payment, you know, for that. And then this reestablishes a, a, a harmony uh, again. So that then becomes uh, 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 possible. But there are other uh, rituals can be done of uh, offering a substitute for this, uh, for uh, a person. And you, you may do this on other occasions which are, where there isn't a attack, especially by a spirit, but you have a problem with uh, uh, chungpo or wandering spirits who haven't taken up uh, an incarnation yet, or some that are uh, shidak, who are remain tied to a, a, spe a specific location. Now, some of them may become a type of spirit known as a yidak or preta, which is uh, what we usually call in the West a, a ghost that causes a haunting. And we had an experience in Seattle when I was a university student with that, where this uh, Tibetan family uh, purchased a house and they suddenly started having these uh, poltergeist experience and noisy ghosts, you know, things crashing on the floor and uh, all this. And they brought in our Lama, Dejan Rinpoche, who did some meditations and some uh, divinations and that, and determined that this was a yiduk, they prayed to our, uh, a hungry ghost, uh, that is the spirit of somebody who had died previously in that house and hadn't been able to let go of that attachment and so on. And so uh, he prescribed making a dir. A dir is an uh, elaborate ransom offering. It looks like a kind of wooden structure. And inside you have various things that symbolize the people in the house and uh, all this kind of thing. And uh, he did that in the ceremony that uh, goes with it. And then... Uh, at the conclusion, just before dawn, he took this out into the uh, to the crossroads, and when the sun rays of the sun would strike the dirt, the spirit would be liberated, but it couldn't find its way back uh, to the house which had, had imprisoned it, 
And so then it's liberated to wander off into the bardo and to uh, uh, seek a, a new birth. So they are these battery of uh, rituals coming out of both the Buddhist Indian tradition and the earlier shamanic and bumpo uh, traditions of uh, Tibet. And so you have these ransom rites like du or uh, lu and uh, so on. And then there's collections of these rites that have been made by Mipam and other uh, learned lamas and so on, and I've uh, seen them uh, performed. And uh, similarly, if uh, there is uh, a spirit possession uh, a, a affliction, then one would uh, do uh, such rituals as a... Uh, a Laguk uh, to recall the soul, because there's a, a Tibetan understanding of the soul, which is a bit different than the uh, Indian, and comes out of the uh, shamanic tradition. And they speak of the soul uh, as the la, but that's spelled differently than hla. Hla means a god or a spirit. La means the uh, soul. And uh, the soul is not your namshe, it's not your consciousness, it's not your uh, prana life force. Rather, it's a type of energy which is the energetic basis for your emotional life. Someone who has suffered uh, soul loss, they manifest various symptoms, uh, in particular chronic de depression, uh, uh, a lack of energy, a lack of enthusiasm for life, and uh, uh, so on. These are symptoms of uh, uh, soul loss. And that can be caused by uh, various things, especially alcoholism, drug addiction, things like uh, this. And uh, so the Lama can do a, a ritual uh, these various methods of lago to uh, summon again the uh, soul. And when I saw Lopentenzing uh, uh, Nanda did this, he had a, a this large uh, brass bowl, and in it there was a, a mixture of uh, uh, milk and water, and so it clouded it. You couldn't uh, see down uh, into it. And on another plate that uh, floated uh, on top, he made a uh, laguk, uh, la rather, which is a soul sheep. It's an image of uh, a sheep. And then everything is purified and empowered in, in the ritual and the me meditation. And then uh, visualizes the uh, fragments of uh, the soul uh, being reintegrated and uh, returning to the soul sheep. And a sign that uh, the ritual is working is when spontaneously the soul sheep turns around and looks at the practitioner who is sitting there with the uh, uh, Lama. And these are very ancient rituals that were done before Buddhism 
came to Tibet, but now they've been incorporated into uh, um, Buddhism and so on, and then often attributed to Padmasambhava, who actually uh, got on quite well with the uh, uh, shamans. And uh, so in the Nyingmapa tradition, it's very much like this. Whereas uh, with the newer tra traditions, the Sarmapas, uh, the later schools, they tend to feel that, oh no, uh, you know, we have what, com what comes from India is pure and all this uh, other stuff, you know, is kind of not a bit of a Christian attitude. But in, in Tibetan Buddhism, it's very flexible. Individual lamas all take their own position. So you even have Gelukpa lamas who are doing Padmasambhava practice or His Holiness the Dalai Lama doing Dzogchen practice and so on. It's not like we tend to think in the West, you know, this sharp division between, all right, we're, we are our own particular version of Christianity is the ultimate and the only true way and everybody else is uh, heresy or paganism or something li like this. It, it isn't that way uh, at, at all. So I was... Uh, re-researching this when I was uh, also in Darji, besides uh, uh, High Tantra and Buddhist philosophy and so on. How does one become a shaman in these particular cultures? I understand that there can be a familial aspect to it, um, but also I understand that in many shamanic traditions there can be a calling of a shaman through perhaps a shamanic sickness or some other means. So I'm wondering, how does one become a shaman in these kinds of contexts that you're discussing here? Well, uh, in traditional cultures, unlike nowadays, where people might want to become a shaman and then take a workshop and reread some books and go to a Michael Harner class, etc., uh, they don't want to become shamans, generally. The spirits call them. The spirits decide we want that person. Now, they may be a descendant of a shaman. Maybe their father was grandfather or grandmother or something like, like this or in their ancestry. But the, when the spirits call them, then they get this shamanic illness and go a little crazy and, uh, and so on. And when they come out of that, they need to be trained how to do shamanism by a, a traditional shaman who will teach them various songs and uh, rituals and this uh, kind of thing. And so you become a shaman when you develop the vocation for it and are summoned for the spirit uh, with uh, Buddhist lamas, it's more or less that you show that uh, indication. You don't necessarily fall uh, ill, but uh, like one, one lama uh, I work with from Kalampang, his father also, he was a ngapa, but uh, not someone who was in some big monastery or something, but he'd go to the villages and so on. And, 
His uh, son showed a capacity for dealing with the spirit and trained him and uh, in the various uh, ritual and meditation practices. And so then uh, uh, he became a, uh, a shaman. So it can happen that way uh, among Buddhist practitioners, but it can also happen when a spirit just decide to grab somebody and uh, then you become a shaman, which is a way of uh, uh, being cured. Ah, it says our battery is running low. You might have to plug in the... Oh, you were saying? Well, what is the status of shamans in those cultures? And I'm asking that question because I'm also wondering, you mentioned that people today would like to become a shaman and... Go well, to, that's here in the West, yes. Right. Go to workshops and so on and do trainings, yeah. and often that involves... Yeah. Uh, and then we began with um, the books of Carlos Castaneda and people thinking what the, he was talking about, Don Juan and, and so on, and shamanism. But uh, Don Juan is not a shaman. He's a magician, a sorcerer. He's doing uh, magic. But the main function of the shaman is healing. That's not what uh, uh, Don Juan was doing. But anyway, it's got people very interested in shamanism then. So it sort of ended up every time you turned over a rock in California, you'd find a shaman. What do you think of that? Are they really shamans? Are they really able to do those things? Or if not, oh, what is it? Yes, I mean... Uh, Traditional shamans are definitely able to do that, whether Westerners who are calling themselves shamans, that's something else again. But some of them were like uh, Edgar Casey. I mean, he was a really uh, a Western shaman. He would go into trance and get possessed by his spirit guide, who said he was had been a previous life some doctor. But anyway, he was very effective in diagnosing uh, diseases and uh, uh, so on. So this is perfectly possible in our uh, own culture. What's the distinction you've made there between magician and shaman? A traditional shaman uh, gets possessed by a spirit guide. Now, of course, uh, he may also do uh, a kind of projection of consciousness too. Uh, you know, uh, Mircea Eliado wrote about this in his big book on shamanism, and he felt that uh, the soul travel was the original form of shamanism and spirit uh, possession represented a later degeneration, but actually they go together, as I was saying before, with the consciousness of uh, the shaman ex exiting his normal body and the spirit guide then taking possession of him, and that spirit guide being quite a separate uh, personality and also having uh, uh, certain capacity, psychic powers, and uh, so on. And when you see this uh, uh, occur, you see this is there is this radical change. It's not the same personality in there. Now, maybe you could explain this by saying, oh, well, there's multiple personalities, blah, blah. 
but the spirit guide uh, exhibits certain capacities which uh, you don't see in the accounts I've read of uh, uh, multiple per personalities here here in the West. Now, <clears throat> a a uh, lama or a, a magician doesn't get totally possessed by a spirit. He retains his or her uh, identity, but is able through the develop of two, there's their innate magical power, which you get through the practice of uh, uh, sadhana and mantra japa and so on, to then command the uh, spirits. Like our, our Western image is that of uh, King Solomon. He received the uh, book of uh, Raziel, which uh, had been uh, presented by the uh, angel of Raziel, the angel of mysteries, to Adam after he'd been kicked out of uh, the Garden of Eden. And in there was contained the secret names of all the uh, angels and uh, spirits and so on. And by virtue of knowing their secret names, then uh, Solomon could uh, invoke or evoke them and then command them, charge them with certain tasks, mainly building his temple there in uh, Jerusalem. So he uh, represents an archetypal magician then in our Western uh, tradition. So that's why when we're doing guardian practice or soma in the Tibetan tradition, uh, we transform ourselves into a yida, which invites a type of uh, possession of the spirit that descends, the yeshe wapa, where the energy uh, descends into us, but we don't lose our identity. We don't fall into a trance or become a different per personality. We retain our sense of identity, but then we can invoke our mantric powers to bring about changes in our environment or to uh, command the spirits to do this, uh, this or, or that. So the, the magician then re retains their uh, a sense of uh, identity and are able to charge the uh, spirits, whereas the uh, shaman then falls into a trance and is possessed by a spirit guide who then works through them. And that's the difference. I wonder, given your uh, capacities and openness, you would say, towards the spirit, encounters that you you have discussed that in in the previous episodes actually and you 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 touched on it briefly here today um, when yeah. you when you entered into that uh, milieu of 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 himalayan shamanism was that recognized by the shamans and what what did you have any interesting discussions with them about that or are there any interesting anecdotes did they advise you at all or involve you at all due to your capacities so that's one one part and the other part is your western occult training did that play into 
your time in Himalaya with the Himalayan shamans? Was that relevant at all? Did that come into play? Well, I mean, it was part of my uh, background, and then I could see the interrelations uh, uh, with, with with them. Um, we didn't have any theoretical uh, discussions uh, as we might have in the West, whether this is just subjective experience and, or this is just uh, projection and so on. As you know, you could hear in the West where they'll come out with uh, so-called scientific explanations of uh, uh, things because they have, we have uh, certain models that have developed very, very much when we neglected Aristotle and we developed the mechanistic uh, view of the world in the 17th century, which has only increased since then. And uh, so uh, there's many, many anomalies which uh, do not fit in this uh, model. And uh, I am not put off by uh, 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 anomalies also, but I'm not uh, uh, naive uh, either that uh, sometimes uh, people's uh, fantasies take on total reality to them, they can, or some people can become uh, schizophrenic and so on, and they are not in control of their experiences and uh, uh, so on. But I found uh, uh, training with Buddha's lamas to be very uh, effective in keeping my own uh, uh, balance and uh, sense of humor about life. This has been a very fascinating discussion indeed. Thank you. I wonder if there's anything more to say that we ought to mention about this topic of, of shamanism, of dune provocation and uh, la retrieval and this sort of thing. Anything else that I haven't asked you about or that, that ought to be said or could be said? Well, in terms of my own practice, I continue in communication with what I call my uh, balconies, and they on occasion give me uh, advice about what is uh, happening in the world which is uh, one reason I've uh, ended up uh, over here in Europe rather than uh, staying in the uh, U US. But also in Buddhist groups, there's uh, been a lot of concern about uh, Jelpo uh, spirits becoming stronger and stronger and manifesting as uh, uh, authoritarianism, sectarianism, uh, uh, all this uh, kind, of, kind of thing. And uh, uh, originally, uh, Jalpos were conceived of as being the uh, spirits of humans who were very either warriors or priests, generally, uh, who were very powerful in their previous life. And uh, when they have entered into their spirit existence, they have kept many of their uh, capacities. And so then they can cause uh, uh, a great deal of uh, uh, 
trouble, in particular in re relation to Dzogchen. There have been concerns about this uh, spirit called Dordoji uh, Shukten. He's gotten into the news in the past and, uh, and so on. And uh, he was uh, originally uh, trained as a, a geisha at the time of the fifth uh, Dalai Lama, and that he'd been recognized as a, uh, a one of the leading candidates to be the what became the fifth Dalai Lama, but he was passed over, and this uh, other child was uh, uh, selected. He came from a, a, a Ningmapa family. Well, he became a Trepung, a very a brilliant uh, geshe, an expert in debate and so on, and very much opposed to Dzogchen in particular, an enemy of this, claiming that uh, Dzogchen uh, represents not a, a Buddhist teaching, but a Bompo teaching, or even worse, a, a Chan teaching coming from China. And that's a, even a bigger insult, uh, insult to say you're practicing Zen and to say <laughs> practicing Bon. Uh, anyway, as a uh, brilliant uh, debater, he made uh, many uh, enemies and they decided to get rid of him. But it is against the vinaya for the monks to shed the blood of a monk. So the other geisha sat on top of him and shoved kata or scarves into his mouth until he uh, died from asphyxiation. And then they threw his body in the Kichu River, and the legend is it uh, came down and came ashore on the estate of his family and was discovered by his mother, who begged him to come back and take vengeance on his enemies. So he began causing uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, trouble, and so the Sixth Dalai Lama, uh, the fifth Dalai Lama, rather, called on the help of uh, Sakya Trinsen, the head of the Sakya uh, sect, because they're very skillful in handling these difficult uh, Jalpo spirits. And they subdued him, and he was imprisoned in a bottle. And it said that the fifth Dalai Lama kept this in his church, um, in his private uh, quarters in the Potala Palace. But then uh, after he died, uh, some monks uh, came into his room and either deliberately or just out of uh, curiosity, released this uh, Jopo spirit from its imprisonment and he escaped. And then he remained a very minor uh, guardian figure within the uh, pantheon until the end of the 19th century when the great Lama uh, Pawankapa decided to uh, resurrect his uh, uh, cult and uh, did this and tacked on an empowerment for Shukden onto the Dorje Shukden, uh, the uh, uh, Dorje Jikje practice. That's a very wrathful form of Manjushri. 
and so uh, put it on there and then gave that empowerment to all his uh, uh, the disciples and so on. And uh, among certain lines of Kalukpa that has continued to be the uh, practice until uh, uh, today. But uh, if you then practice uh, Dzogchen, the Shukden can make you ill and cause you many problems. And this, it is said, happened with the present Dalai Lama. And uh, when he was taken very ill, the government in Dharamsala went to the Nechong Oracle. Now, normally, the Nechong Oracle becomes possessed by the spirit Pehar. Pehar was originally a Turkish god, but was invited to uh, Tibet by Padmasambhava to become a protective spirit for Samye Monastery because the original Naga who was living there didn't want to do this. So anyway, Pehar. So normally the uh, uh, Necho is a, was a small uh, small Nyingmapa monastery uh, adjacent to Samye. And then with the exile, it's now been re resurrected in Dharamsala. And so they went to the uh, Necho uh, Oracle uh, there. And he went into trance, but instead of uh, Pehar uh, manifesting in him and speaking through him, Paldin Lama, the great female guardian, manifested. And she said the whole problem is that uh, Pehar, is, that Chuten is uh, angry because the Dalai Lama took uh, instruction in Dzogchen practice and is doing this so that he must discontinue all of the uh, Dorje Jikten and Chikten practice he had gotten from one of his uh, tutors, Trichang Rinpoche, who was a disciple of uh, Pawankapa. And uh, so... I remember I was living in Boda when this happened and they set up certain pavilions there and the Tibetans were doing mantra japa, recitation of mantra 24 seven, you know, there. And uh, within two weeks, this uh, cleared up the Dalai Lama's illness and uh, all, all, all this. But there continued to be other uh, incidents that uh, a Galupa fundamentalist group grew out, out of this and later became uh, edited by Geshe Kelsong in Great uh, Britain and they have split from the Dalai Lama. It's brought about this political split. So some of the Lamas on Kelsong's side, you know, uh, Kelsong built a Shukden shrine right in the middle of his place in Cumbria. And that's because I know somebody who'd been there and seen all that and, uh, and so on. And it was often felt that some of the attacks on Namkainorbu Rinpoche were due to this uh, uh, Jalpo who doesn't want to see Dzogchen teachings, which he regards as heretical uh, spread in the West. 
So this is a very different way of looking at things than we are used to in Western political science. So this goes on in the uh, Tibetan world. Anyway, so, uh, I avoided uh, contact with uh, these uh, spirits. So although I've met Trichong Rinpoche and was impressed by his presence and power and so on, and other uh, uh, lamas in his lineage like Zong Rinpoche, and so I've never taken any uh, tra uh, transmissions uh, on that side only from his said Dalai Lama and his senior uh, tutor, Ling Rinpoche, which is quite different. So it seems that taking certain impairments can have certain consequences. And also, okay. it's said breaking an impairment or discontinuing practice of an impairment that one has received can also have consequences. Is, it, is, is, this, is that in the same category? as what you've just described with Shugden, upsetting or breaking faith with uh, some spirit or so that one's connected to via the impairment? Is that how yeah, that I mean, We had one uh, retreat with Namkai uh, Norbu uh, in the US where we were attacked by this Jopo, but it was kind of indirect. It was through a woman an American woman who had gone to, as a Dharma practitioner, gone to Nepal, gone to the Gelugpa Monastery, and got uh, this uh, empowerment and didn't realize she had received Shukden uh, as part of it. And then she came to our Dzogchen re retreat, and there were definite negative uh, ma manifestations. And Namkai Norbu recognized it uh, immediately, stopped the retreat, and then we did for two, three days just uh, Ekazati practice, Ekazati being a principal female guardian of the Dzogchen teachings. And we just did that, and it dissolved uh, all the negative energy which had manifested. I mean, you saw people beginning to attack each other and so on, just completely out of context. You know, it was palpable. But then it eliminated this, but the poor woman, she couldn't stay. She had just gotten too sick and she, you know, left the uh, re retreat. So on occasion, you experience the, these things. And uh, I mean, most of the time with the Westerners, uh, if they receive empowerments, or they're not strict dumbsick uh, or, or samaya vows, you know, to uh, do the uh, practice and so on. A lot of Westerners are very much active in what Trungpa Rinpoche called the spiritual supermarket because we have all, you know, all kinds of new age things and you can get involved in all kinds of things and they have their social uh, dimensions and maybe one's girlfriend is involved with or one's boyfriend or this and that. So people uh, uh, shift around. So most of the time there's no problem here that they... Uh, especially if one just generally stays with the Dharma and so on. 
there's no uh, ne negative uh, consequences. It's generally, say, even taking some of the very important, big conditions like Kala Chakra and so on. Basically, for most people, it's just chinla. It's just blessing. You get the spiritual energy, and okay, you feel good for a time, and then no neg neg negative uh, uh, consequences coming from it. And this is in line with Buddhism in general. You know, the Buddha is infinitely compassionate. He's not aiming to damn our souls for hell and after a judgment or something like this. They're just aiming to help us evolve spiritually as best we can. But it requires our own effort because he's just pointing the way. He's not actually taking us there. You know, he's, he's not a bus driver or something. <laughs> so you don't get on the Nirvana bus and he takes you there. Okay, my yeah. last question then. Why did you move from the USA to Europe then? You said this was under the direction of, or the advice of your Dakinis. Why did you do that? Uh, actually, I never felt I had deep karma in North America. I didn't feel I'd ever been a you know, Native American. A lot of uh, people from the US have, I mean, if they get into spirituality, they feel, feel that way. Uh, I never felt I had been there. This is my uh, first time, but when I first came to Europe, well, uh, uh, and of course it was uh, Greece, <laughs> first, you know, and then Italy, uh, and then toward North Northern Europe, uh, I really felt a karmic uh, a connection, and that just uh, uh, stayed with me. And for various reasons, well, mainly, I had run out of money and had been expelled. Got my quit India notice from Indira Gandhi, so I had to leave and go back to the U.S. Okay, uh, but there was always I felt that vibration that. Uh, connection. And when it developed that uh, I met the lady who became my third wife, who was from Denmark, that was excuse to move back to Europe. And so I did. <laughs> and of course, then Denmark had this wonderful social system with its national health and all that, where we didn't have anything like that in uh, the, the US. So and then I just stayed in, in Europe and moved to Germany, uh, later Poland, and now uh, Budapest. But I continue to visit the, the U.S. and have many friends and connections there and so on. And actively teaching also. You have Dzogchen, Discovering Buddhahood Within Oneself, the last weekend of December, of the yeah. last weekend of September, uh, coming up quite soon, and that's online. And I understand you also teach in person and so on. And this information is at badgeranatha.com and on your Facebook page. And you yeah. were mentioning to me before that people can also, you're open to people contacting you directly at, at your email address. Uh, should we share that here? Uh, yes, that's vajranata at hotmail.com. I mean, that's prehistoric, so it's still hotmail. It didn't become whatever. Uh, uh, Word uh, or uh, Microsoft is done with it. Outlook, I think they call it now. But anyway, yeah, you know, I didn't want to change it. I just kept it. 
But um, because as I said on the fan page, that's mostly question, technical questions re regarding uh, the seminar, what time and that payment and blah, 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 like that. And uh, I allow my, I have an administrator who takes care of that, that kind, kind of thing. But I use the personal email account. If people have serious Dharma questions, I mean, some people, and I found it very much uh, in Poland because Poland is very much under the shadow of the Catholic Church. And so you're not supposed to question anything, ask any questions of the priest or anything. So uh, it's the same way with the Polish Buddhists, you know, they think, well, you just have to sit there and be quiet and the Lama does anything and you can't ask any any questions. No, no, I mean, I'm from America. We're used to asking questions and so on. I mean, of course, in the past, I never did get a straight answer about what the, the Holy Spirit is or the, the Heilige Geist or the Holy Ghost or whatever you call it. Uh, or whether God comes in three parts. It was all very mysteriously to me, and still, uh, until I actually started doing research on the Nicene Creed and uh, all those debates from the time of the Emperor Constantine and afterwards, etc. Anyway, but that's part of the history of uh, Christianity. But uh, people shouldn't be afraid to ask questions about the uh, Dharma. I mean, it happened in the time of the Buddha because the Buddha just wasn't giving lectures and then walking off. Well, a lot of it was question and answer and discussion and not so much debate. Nobody's trying to win an argument against the uh, Buddha, but to help clarify things and how does well, how is this meaningful in terms of your own personal uh, experience? Because I say the Buddha was just pointing the way, but the practitioner has to put in the effort to travel the path, you know. And so then it's important you know what you're uh, doing and what. Uh, what alternatives are there, what materials and methods are there, and so on. Because Tibetan Buddhism comes to us from outside Europe. It's, uh, a lot of people perceive as uh, an exotic culture in Tibet. I feel very comfortable in Tibetan culture. I don't have any problem with that, but some people may be perceived as saying, oh, you Tibetan Buddhists, you worship demons, and so on. <laughs> <laughs> in order to transform net negative energies, then the Yida manifests in a wrathful and energetic form, you know. But at heart is uh, totally uh, calm and uh, compassionate, you know. May look fierce on the outside like a Vajrakilaya or, or something. But uh, this is all part of the... Uh, skillful means of uh, the Dharma, because the Dharma is not just wisdom, it's also uh, skillful means. That it isn't enough just to have the correct view talking to somebody, but you also have to present it skillfully, because otherwise you can totally uh, destroy what you're trying to say to them. Yeah. So I see my seminars as educational 
that way, letting people know who are interested uh, what is uh, uh, available there. So, and I just do this. What a wonderful opportunity there. The last weekend of September, Dzogchen discovering Buddhahood within oneself. Yeah. Well, this has been wonderful. Lama Vajranata, thank you very much. <laughs> a pleasure. See you again. <laughs> thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.